From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 29, Godzilla, U.S., 1998. Hello, G-fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherschel. And this week, we're going to be talking about Ferris Bueller meets Godzilla. (laughs) Better known as Godzilla, directed by Roland Emmerich and produced by Dean Devlin from 1998. That's right. We are going to be dedicating an entire episode of this podcast to delegating this movie to the pile of refuse in which it belongs. And that leads us to our 4K video for this week. It is of the landfill in Allen County, Indiana. It is the largest pile of garbage that we possibly could find that is in our locale. Think of it as I think we're one of the few kaiju podcasts who has the guts to dedicate an episode to this movie. As I know some of you out there are probably a little disappointed with us for doing this, but we're going through the series chronologically. This is technically part of the legacy, and it puts a lot of the subsequent movies that we're going to be seeing after this into context. And it was approved by the studio that made all of the Japanese Godzilla movies, too. And so that means it's sanctioned, and we're going to go ahead. However, like the rest of the fan base for the vast majority, uh, we don't like it very much, which that, that is, uh, the main, will be the main focus of our discussion. Our related topics will be just as normal. Even though we're doing an American movie, we'll not be covering American issues. We'll be continuing on with Japan, because 1998 was an interesting year for Japan. And so the related topics for this episode are the 1998 North Korea missile test and the 1998 Nagano Winter Olympics. All right, with that, we're moving on to our film description, which is our way of comparing all of these movies to each other. Go for it, Brian. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a giant marine iguana mutated by French nuclear tests. It travels to Manhattan to find a nest to lay over 200 eggs and gathers fish for its young while eluding the military. The baby Godzillas have only one motivation, eat. They attack humans because they smell like the fish that are blanketing the nest. Dr. Nico Wormguy Totopoulos, an awkward but intelligent biologist, is brought in by the U.S. military to help them discover what sort of creature is attacking ships around the world. His determined ex-girlfriend, Audrey Timmons, pretends to be a reporter covering Godzilla's attack on Manhattan to advance her career. Philippe Roche is a patriotic French secret agent dispatched by his government to eliminate Godzilla since his country's nuclear tests created it. Victor Animal Pilati is a smart-alecky news cameraman following Audrey as she covers Godzilla's attacks. The hard-nosed Colonel Hicks is a military commander leading the investigation into Godzilla's attacks and later coordinates operations against it. The kaiju and human plotlines become more unified as the movie progresses. The characters' lives are at first separate from Godzilla, and there's a romantic subplot between Nick and Audrey. 
Both Godzilla and its young are problems. Godzilla is lured out with a huge pile of fish and chased by Apache helicopters, which it destroys. A second trap baited with fish is set, but Godzilla realizes it's a setup and dives into the Hudson River, where it defeats several submarines by making them torpedo each other. However, one sub scores a hit on Godzilla, which sinks to the bottom of the river. Meanwhile, Nick and Philippe search for Godzilla's nest, locating it in Madison Square Garden. They attempt to set bombs to destroy the nest, but the eggs hatch and the baby Godzillas attack them. The problems are solved when Audrey broadcasts a news report showing the nest, leading to an Air Force strike that destroys the garden. Godzilla appears and, enraged by the deaths of its young, chases the heroes throughout the city in a cab until it is tangled in the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge and killed by fighter jets with missiles. The script by Dean Devlin and director Roland Emmerich is a relatively simple action thriller with lots of poorly written characters and humor. The film was given a budget of $130 million, which was typical for Hollywood summer blockbusters at the time. It was filmed in several locations around the world, including New York City and Hawaii, and on several impressive sound stages. Patrick Totopoulos, after whom the movie's protagonist was named, radically redesigned Godzilla from a large, lumbering dinosaur to a fast and agile lizard, which was approved by Toho. While there were some decent practical effects, most notably whenever Godzilla bites or claws vehicles, Godzilla was created using CGI for the first time. Unfortunately, it looks quite dated now. This is a light popcorn movie that undermines any gravitas with lame humor. Regardless, the movie attempts to be a grounded kaiju story by presenting extraordinary events in a relatively realistic setting. Aside from redesigning Godzilla, this isn't an experimental movie. It's a typical 1990s summer blockbuster that borrows heavily from much better films. This movie mostly reinforces the styles of 1933's King Kong with its New York City setting and 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms by featuring a similar creature and plot. Multiple American producers had expressed interest to Toho to make a big-budget Hollywood Godzilla film since the 1980s. By the early 1990s, TriStar acquired the rights to produce the film, and a script titled Godzilla vs. the Griffin was written by screenwriters Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. This was discarded by Devlin and Emmerich when they wrote their script. By this point, Toho had ended the Heisei series and was content to let TriStar start a new franchise in America. It was intended for the summer blockbuster audience and, theoretically, for American Godzilla and Kaiju fans. When released on May 20th, 1998, the movie grossed $56 million its opening weekend, well below the projected total of $90 million. It went on to earn $136 million domestically, with an attendance of $29 million. It was released on July 11th, 1998, in Japan, where it grossed 3 billion yen, or about $25 million, with an attendance of 3.5 million. It earned $379 million worldwide. The Godzilla fanbase hates this movie. Science clashes with militarism with Colonel Hicks' refusal to listen to Nick's theories and warnings about Godzilla building a nest. Audrey is told by her best friend that she needs to stop being a nice girl if she wants to advance her career in the dog-eat-dog world of New York City. Audrey faces sexism when her boss, the married anchorman Charles Kamen, offers to promote her if she has dinner with him at her place. Nature, while powerful, is shown to eventually be conquered by mankind. Both Nick and Audrey say they were once part of an anti-nuclear movement in college. Solid themes are hard to come by in this movie. Personal responsibility is touched upon with the French government sending agents to kill Godzilla, although they're also attempting to cover up their mistake. There's a mild social commentary when Philippe jokes one can buy anything, including assault rifles and other military-grade weapons, in America. Through this ordeal, Nick and Audrey learn to trust one another again and reconcile. This concludes part one of the podcast. 
You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion on the film at hand. And I, we've already said what we think of this movie, so don't need to repeat ourselves too much. It is the most boring Godzilla movie in the franchise. It's also, oddly enough, the longest. <laughs> it feels longer than it actually is. Yeah, 139 True. minutes. I had forgotten how long it was. Before I watched, isn't it like again. ten minutes of that the, the credits? Ten minutes just, of it is credits. Endless yeah. music from exactly that year, <laughs> just shoved into it as much as possible. I, I made the so mis- that's ten minutes right there. Yeah, I felt like that was all that. I made the mistake of playing this movie's soundtrack when I was writing part one, as I do with all of these movies. As I will tell Did you, you for- feel like you were back in high school. No, uh, it's not so much. It, I, I felt like I was back in the 90s. I did feel like I was back in the 90s, so I guess I did feel like I was back in high school. Except now, I, I ended up regretting because for about two days, I had that goofy Puff Daddy song stuck in my head. You know, the one where he practically stole Immigrant Song uh-huh. <laughs> as the backdrop. Oh. <laughs> the thing that really cracks me up is the, the Wallflower song actually resurfaced within the last year or so because I think it was used for Justice League. <laughs> in fact i think actually that godzilla the album actually was more popular than the movie that should tell you something so first let's talk about where this movie is in the godzilla franchise because this is an Im- important thing to bring up when discussing this movie in a series of all of these films when you're going chronologically i don't really feel like it even belongs in the godzilla franchise it's more of like a bad version of the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms Yeah, that's really what this feels like to me. I had talked with a fellow fan at some point, and he actually said that it would have been better to actually just call this beast from 20,000 Fathoms. (laughs) Because it has way more in common with that than anything Godzilla. It almost feels like this is a spoof of Godzilla, too, at times. I could see that. It's almost like he's making fun of the genre. That would require... There are a lot of fans that are insulted by this. That would require that it was actually funny, though. This movie is not nearly as funny as it wants to think it is. It's not funny at all. Although, you know what did make this movie funny? Riff tracks. <laughs> I haven't seen the episode for that. I have, actually. In fact, uh, I actually went to a movie theater and saw the Riff tracks live of this movie, which means I have actually seen this film in a movie theater twice. Because I did go see it when it was originally released. I didn't go because I heard it was terrible. And I was right. This is a lazier film than Godzilla vs. Megalon, also. It's lazier in a different way, but yes. it still is. Mm-hmm. It still is, because everything's a cardboard cutout, and really, we're just watching people react to things in the exact same way over and over and over again. Well, what's really sad is when I was watching this, I was realizing that this actually has the sorts of Sekizawan trappings that we would expect, especially with the characters, because we have, you know, we have reporters and scientists and, and soldiers, politicians. Except they're largely th- negative personalities. Yeah. With a lead anti-hero, which doesn't work. But then we, maybe we were a little bit hard on these Heisei movies. <laughs> up to this, just, just I mean, the, the Heisei movies have their own weaknesses that are apparent, but then these are completely different kinds of weaknesses 
that are actually worse. And this is more boring, too. This is way more boring. The Heisei films weren't boring. There were other things that were an issue, but they weren't boring. This was sleep-inducing to me. We'll be getting to what the fan reaction to this was, but I think this is it's important to sort of gauge this movie with how it relates to the others. And we, we just haven't seen a movie like this, especially seeing it chronologically. This is so jarringly different compared to everything that we've been seeing, especially recently, but the whole time in the franchise, this is completely different. Like I said in our introduction, I think the worst part about this movie is that it is sleep-inducing and boring. People writing favorable reviews of this movie, they, I, hear, I, keep, I kept reading a mantra, and it was, sit back and enjoy the movie, just calm down, it's popcorn fun, etc. It's a summer blockbuster, it's not Meryl Streep, and it's not supposed to be Oscar-winning acting, and it's, and it's just a, like a sort of line of excuses. But <laughs> I'm not going to sit back and enjoy this movie. I will lay back and enjoy this movie, and you can wake me up after it's over. I honestly felt like I had just watched James Michener's Hawaii by the time I got to the end of this movie. 90 minutes in, I was like, done. I, I, I kept watching it, but I, my psychologically, I just resigned from the movie. I withdrew from it because I knew that the whole rest of it was going to be Jurassic Park and all this other nonsense that comes at that point. It is almost exactly 90 minutes when that happens. And I thought, no, this is when you're supposed to be ending this movie. It's supposed to be nice and tight. You're supposed to have a nice three-act setup. Making a Godzilla movie in America should be so incredibly easy. You don't need all that much acting. You don't need all that much stuff. Just make it like the ones that so many Godzilla fans in this country were used to seeing by this point. But that's not what they did. It's an extra 52 minutes longer after the 90-minute mark. And where did that extra 52 minutes come from? Well, all of it was essentially Jurassic Parkian stuff from that, from especially from that point on. But from 90 minutes on, it gets wor- The movie gets worse on a geometric scale. <laughs> I I don't think I'm mad about this movie. I'm not really upset about it. Even at this point, it's you. I don't even want to give it that much recognition. It's just boring. It doesn't make me angry either. I, I look back on this movie and sigh more than anything else. The thing well, I was that, sighing a lot during this movie. Yeah, too. well, the thing that gets to me is I do agree with you that the movie just it's just not that interesting when I'm watching it. And I think that's in large part because of the acting and but. the characters all react the same way to everything. So it's we're essentially seeing a sa- the same set of lines, almost yeah. like the lines are just rewritten or assigned to different characters sometimes in order for us to be like, oh, he said that too. Yeah. Well, the thing that gets me is you're bringing up people are saying, oh, just sit back, turn off your brain. It's just a popcorn movie. And I almost want to go to them and say, this isn't Independence Day. I know. I'm comparing this to Independence Day. But Independence Day is still more entertaining. And it's the same guys. I don't understand. I've never seen that. You've- yes, I know, everybody. I've never seen Independence Day. Oh, I'm little surprised, but yet not. <laughs> because it has his name on it. That's my answer. <laughs> the jokes in this just don't land. 
And I don't, again, I don't know if it's the writing or if it's the acting. It's probably a combination of both. Because really, the only actor who makes any of the jokes even remotely funny is Sean Renault, who's probably the best actor, or at least gives the best performance out of anybody in this movie. It's impossible to give a good performance with lines like this, though. Yeah. We definitely aren't, we don't want to trash the actors in this. Nobody could do these lines well. That You can't act this for real. It just doesn't work. None of these lines work. Anyway, so how are you going to it's like trying to put lipstick on a pig. You can't, you're, there's no way you're going to be able to deliver this stuff and actually have it sound good. Yeah. I think the joke that really kind of bugged me the most was this movie's attempt at a running gag. There's a couple of them, but the one that really got old really fast was how nobody can say Nick Tatopoulos. Everyone keeps saying it wrong. It's actually not that hard. Yeah. It's not that hard, but it turns into this thing. And I was trying to timestamp all the times that it happened. Eventually I just kind of said, I can't, keep track of all of this anymore. I didn't care enough to do anything like that at all. My apathy just stopped. It thankfully stops about halfway through. But still, it was just like, this was not nearly as funny as you think it is. They could have brought it up one more time towards the end, and then everybody in the audience would be like, oh, they did it again! (laughs) Another issue with this movie is that it is very long, but also... There's not enough going on with the movie to warrant this kind of length. Even just the first 90 minutes, that is, they don't have 90 minutes worth of movie in that first 90 minutes. It's more like an hour at the most. But it also goes with the fact that uh, our, our director apparently doesn't believe in editing all that much. Because this movie, if somebody gave it to me and said, please edit this, I could get it down to 90 minutes. Maybe I could get it down to an hour. <laughs> that cutting room floor, it would be so filled with film that I'd, I might not be able to open the door <laughs> because it's just be blocked from all that. That's how much I would have cut. But it, it goes along with this movie thinks that it is worth 139 minutes. It is not, but it thinks it is. And that sort of goes on to my problem with the writing. Did you watch this with subtitles? I did not. I'm one of those people that watches nearly everything with subtitles. I love subtitles, especially if they're good ones and they're really accurate. And they are on this, even though they're that, the DVD version, I think is that disgusting yellow color that yes. <laughs> nobody likes anymore. Yeah. I did. Uh, I did watch a scene or two in with the subtitles just to make sure I heard things right. Yeah. We got the nineties DVD subtitles going on with this for sure. Cause yeah, just like everything in this movie is dated, but watching this movie with the subtitles on and actually reading this screenplay, it makes it even worse because I, I would be the, like all this cringeworthy humor that you've been, that you mentioned, but like this whole screenplay is just cringeworthy. But if I, if somebody printed it out and made me read it, it would be so painful to have to read it, but it's just, it's so weak and it's just so bland it's so bland. Just like the acting is bland and the, and everything else in this movie is bland. <laughs> the acting is so bland that anybody who gives anything close to an interesting performance really stands out. And even though you can tell they're not trying that much harder. And that moves on to our next thing, which is this movie is utterly lifeless. And that, that goes with the territory for the people that made this movie. They're, with ex- with a couple exceptions, the, the par for the course for these guys is really mediocre. 
but it's utterly lifeless. Did you see how Satsuma was there? And he said, it's not Godzilla. It doesn't have the spirit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty damning, too, is that Godzilla himself came there and said, there's, there's nothing here. There's nothing here to see. And there isn't. There's no spirit in this at all. I don't think I actually felt anything at all in this movie. I don't think I felt anything. From start well, to finish, I, it was complete apathy from start to finish. Well, the thing that's a little bit confusing is when you get to the end of the movie, when Godzilla dies, it seems like the movie wants you to feel something. But it doesn't really work because we've been given no reason to sympathize with the creature. There's no investment yeah. in anything feeling-wise. And so the ending is completely muted because nobody feel nobody felt anything throughout this. So why are you expecting us to feel anything now? I'm not. Don't expect me to. But that's that's part of what movies are about, I thought, was to make you have some kind of feeling. <laughs> Even if it is just a normal, oh, that was an exciting blockbuster thing that I can just judge on its own merit and, and take it for what it is. That, I couldn't even do that with this. This is boring. And it's really, it feels, makes me feel old because it's so dated. <laughs> yeah, and yet, this is so, so dated. We've been watching all these movies from the 50s and the 60s, and yet this is more dated than those are. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. But I think it it goes with the territory. A lot of movies, particularly big Hollywood movies that are being produced around this time, they all have this that same sort of problem. They are so entrenched in the moment that they were made, they don't have much lasting effect. Made me think of Blockbuster Video for the first time in a very long time. <laughs> yes. I've forgotten about that. Yes. Uh, there's actually a fair amount of product placement in this movie. Oh, there's a lot, yeah. <laughs> An overarching problem with this whole movie is how it's not a monster movie. It's not a kaiju movie. It's more of a... It's not even a monster on the loose story. It's an animal on the loose story. Which just means it's almost, he's just a vector, or it, it's really more of an it in this one, is it's a vector that needs to be uh, uh, taken out, and it's just, um, it's bigger than usual, so that makes it extraordinary, <laughs> and, that, and that's about it. But it's, it's not a kaiju movie, really. Because right, you're, you're saying uh, to be a kaiju movie, the creature must actually have some personality? Well, no, not necessarily, I mean... The, I think it's just that it isn't even di a dinosaur. So that makes Beast from 20,000 Fathoms more of a kaiju movie than this. And there was some kind of investment in the awesomeness, I guess, of the creature itself. And instead of just wandering around like a normal monster would, this is, it's animal-like instead. It, it must nest, it must feed, it must do this and that must protect the nest and yeah. gather food for its young and right. And so, and this isn't really typically what Godzilla has been doing up to now in all these Japanese movies we've been watching. <laughs> it's not those kind of things. And so it's not even wandering around. This is just uh yeah, it's an animal on the loose, get animal control, take care of it. Only animal control has to be the military cause it's big. And that's about it. 
overall, I, I, I know that Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich maybe even have apologized about various parts about this movie. They really couldn't apologize enough for me. The, the snippets of an interview that I read, they only brought up two things, two things that they regretted about this movie. How self-critical. Yeah. Uh, one was they did say that they mishandled the creature. They think they should have done it differently, probably given it personality and, and such. And then they said that they should have shouldn't have had so much exposition in the middle of the movie. That was it. I'm like, I'm thinking, really, that's it. I could pick out a lot more than that. <laughs> I, I would say everything. But moving on to everything, let's talk about some specific things about this particular disaster movie. Actually, calling it a disaster movie might be a better description than a kaiju movie. <laughs> Starting off, let's do the uh, titles. That, that, that's where I first start having problems. It's like, what, like two minutes into the movie? Yeah, pretty but, much. Um, it, the 2014 movie, the, the titles to that, which is the other U.S. Godzilla movie, after you know, in this area, but I was finding myself uh, a little bit concerned when I was watching this. I'm thinking, wow, this there's actually a few things that the 2014 movie borrowed from this. The title yes, sequence the, is one of them. Yes, they should try not to do that. Um, the American Godzilla movies and the MonsterVerse and all that, they should not try to do anything like what's in this movie at any point in time ever. So be careful. We're watching. <laughs> I also have a problem with uh, Matthew Broderick, come to think of it. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't mind him as an actor or as a person, but man, is he ever... He's not given anything to do that's good in this movie, but, but his maybe he was being more annoying on purpose, but he, the whole mechanics of this is what? Is he, he's an anti-hero, right? But uh, he has the most punchable face of any of, <laughs> any of the characters in this movie. I... I'm so annoyed by him. It, the the anti-hero aspect of this does not work at all. And anytime that he's on the screen, I cannot stand him. And I know that probably everybody in this just wanted the paycheck and, and to move on with their lives. Probably they, they weren't saying this is going to be my greatest performance. No, that's not what this is meant for, but wow. Uh, starting him off with singing, singing in the rain was <sighs> The cringe level just skyrocketed right there. I was so annoyed. I wanted Debbie Reynolds to just kick him in the balls <laughs> so hard. I, I realized what they were trying to get at with Nick in this movie is that he's supposed to be kind of an awkward nerd who became this high profile scientist or something, but he comes across a lot more like a dork. And I get the whole singing in the rain thing is supposed to be like, Oh, well let's endear the audience to this character by having him sing a song badly. And I get it. You know, Broderick's done a or, lot of Broadway work be, and all or of that, that because he's a, aren't they implying that because he's a musical fan that makes him more of a dork? Yeah, probably. This movie actually makes fun of people and actually kind of almost like bullies people. It, this movie is very negative. It's a very negative movie. But this is that's just another aspect. It's like, oh, okay, so anybody in the audience that likes musicals, ha ha. <laughs> oh, excuse me? Well, what you, shouldn't this movie be getting on with what it's supposed to do? Yeah. Well, and the other thing that doesn't help with that singing in the rain thing is that it's a total buzzkill because 
the opening scene of this movie is the Japanese fishing boat. One and of the it's, few okay scenes. Yeah, and it's really intense. It's very visceral at points, and then suddenly, boom, singing in the rain. It was like, well, that was abrupt. Also, there is... <laughs> so, an, yeah, you said bad editing. Yeah. There you go. Also, there's an important thing to do here with, with the fact that there's a difference between a geek, a nerd, and a dork. Oh, yes. Those Big three words are very different from each other. This guy is a dork. <laughs> if he was a geek, that would have been okay. If he was if he was a geek, that would have been fine. Then that would have been a better character, but you wouldn't have been able to be all clever with your anti-hero. So instead we have to put up with him being a total dork. And I do think if the acting was better, you could have either made Nick either a lovable dork or you just could have converted him to being an eccentric, maybe a little bit of an awkward geek. And it still would have worked. It would have been better than this, yeah. Mm-hmm. And right away, we, we get the other thing where this movie is putting people down in a way, because it's almost like putting people down who have harder last names to pronounce. But we, we get that, too, and I'm like, oh. So the, the running gag is nobody cares about how to pronounce somebody's last name right because it's not Jones or whatever. Yeah. In this that case, it's Greek. Is, yeah. And this is more, it's just ridicule, essentially, isn't it? You could take it that way. I, I think. I am. I do I, think. I am going I to do take think, it that way on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the joke is supposed to be yeah, people, oh, people who have hard to pronounce names, well, they'll understand this because, oh, it's a problem that they have to deal with. But I've never had anybody say that. My last name's Churchill. I have never heard some one person say, oh, whatever, after I pronounce it to them. Never has that happened. No, I've never had it happen either. Although you would think no one would be would say my name wrong, but my own fa- people in my own family can't even agree on how to pronounce it. <laughs> oh, the, the, yeah, the A. But I've never heard anybody say, yeah, whatever. And, but of course, we, get, we, we have to have our New York attitude in everything. I'm too busy to care about what your name is. <laughs> <sighs> I bet people from Boston hate this movie. <laughs> so many things to hate about this movie if you're from Boston. People in general don't like this movie. <laughs> nobody should like it. And these characters, they put each other down, too. Well, they are a bunch of just... The, all these characters are just a bunch of insecure losers, so I guess that it is what they would do. Especially Audrey's best friend. She's really... She's very much the stereotypical, brusque New Yorker. You know, I, she's I got guess. that Bronx uh, Bronx accent. She says, yo, if you want to make it in this world, you gotta you gotta stop being a nice girl. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, really? I think it's like every tourist's expectation of what New York City is like. They, they, that's what we're doing here, I guess, with this movie, right? Like the, it's anybody from the Midwest who's never been there. This is exactly what you would think New York city and all of its inhabitants are like, yeah. And thank then, God it's not like that. Yeah. Well, and then <laughs> you're talking about putting people down, you know, you have poor animal played by Hank Azaria, who's again, one of the few bright spots of acting in this movie. And he's always getting put down because he's married to Audrey's best friend and he's a little bit scared of her even though he wants to go out and do daring 
adventurous things, but then he's scared that his wife's going to yell at him. I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, there's even... I wasn't a, paying attention very much. Yeah, there's even a mildly humorous joke where he says that he's afraid he's afraid that you know that uh my wife will hurt me that's essentially what Uh he says and yeah like i said hank is there i mean he's done a lot of voice acting particularly on the simpsons and he can kind of sell the joke even though it's not that good but again it's just you can you can try 200 percent in your acting and you're still not going to be able to deliver this stuff well watching this movie post 2017 is really funny (laughs) <laughs> and you know what part I'm talking about, right? Harry Shearer. Oh. <laughs> and his role as the anchor who is... <laughs> the sexist anchor man. Well, more than that. And he, uh, I mean, he, I will admit, he, but... he didn't grope her or anything, but no. it was definitely implied. A whole lot was implied. Well, he was that. trying at least. Yes. Yeah. Yes. His intentions were is what matters. Mm-hmm. And it's so hilarious. We're, we're seeing this in, in the news broadcasting world yeah and this has happened i thought oh wow this is this is funny to watch now uh, <laughs> i don't know how well received this one there's actually a few things that i think a modern audience would find a little bit problematic with it that's one of them and uh-huh. some of the the twin tower stuff would probably feel a little awkward to some people now yes, too that, that, that did feel awkward yes I would especially so. since there's even a reference where nice that they didn't destroy them that would have yeah. been even more awkward <laughs> yeah instead we destroy some other stuff yeah just for a uh, fun yeah because the, all and there's there's the uh Cayman makes a reference about how this is the worst disaster since the trade center bombings yes from also, the early 90s yes, <laughs> bad but the as you as we all would probably agree the worst in the acting department would be maria patillo and her unfortunate hair and her unfortunate voice and the unfortunate lines that she is told to say, <laughs> which I don't want to blame her as an actress for this, because, like I said, it's the script. It, it'll make an actor act sound bad. There's, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself from that. There are only a handful of actors in the really in the history of films who I think could take a bad script and make it sound good. They could still sell it. She's not one of them. But they'd have to act really into it. They'd have to be so emotionally involved, and they'd have to act like they're they're in Hamlet. And then it would be just silly. If these people actually were like, okay, you have to you have to act like Godzilla is actually in New York City. If they did that, it would be hilarious. If they acted it totally straight, and and if or if it was like a. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Patrick there. Stewart's been in some bad movies, dude. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean, though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine Patrick Stewart doing like a Shakespearean acting serious way to, to this movie. I think it'd be hilarious. And all the actors would be hilarious. It wouldn't work. And instead, so instead it's like, how, okay, so I can't deliver my lines well. Because then it would sound almost silly, but so I guess I just have to say the line just, just as is, as if I'm just say, as if I'm reading it. Some actors can pull it off by just going full tilt crazy with it, though. Like Roll Julia, if you ever, if you ever see the the Van Damme Street Fighter movie, he plays the villain in that, and the script's not that great, but he just goes nuts with it. He just totally embraces the role he knows he's playing a bond villain so he just goes with it 
But there's a role to embrace. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't we don't have that here. No. <laughs> the honest movie trailers on uh, YouTube did one for this movie, and the the part that I laughed at the most was when they showed the redhead girl, and the voice is like, "And Kathy Griffin." <laughs> <laughs> and Maria Patillo was career killer. <laughs> yes. And that reminded me of the Mystery Science Theater joke from the Catalina Caper episode, where she was in the, out in the water and. Kevin was like, my career is drowning. <laughs> but I think Kathy Griffin would have been good. Her personality actually fits this. Mm-hmm. But she, she actually would have been normal. Actually, she's the sort of character you or an, an actress you'd want in this. Because then it would have been like, oh, it's Kathy Griffin. There's, an, there's a sort of actual atmosphere to this. Mm-hmm. But, but instead, we're just, we, we just have nothing to, nothing at all. Something that gets lobbed against this movie a lot in terms of the special effects is the movie is really fond of rain. It is raining almost constantly in this movie, especially once we get to New York. And I realize theoretically it's to create some sort of an atmosphere. But I think the real reason is that the the, the rain allows them to hide some of the imperfections in the effects. And this is not something new to this. This sort of technique has been used a lot. But after a while, the rain really does get old. You get tired of the raincoats and the umbrellas and everyone's hair looking all goofy. And uh, yeah, and, that's and the all, darkness, the and darkness, heavy, too. Even when it's day is not day. Yeah, because it's, it's cloudy, super dark outside mm-hmm. during the day, too. And so. And then, of course, making the making Godzilla just the same color as a lot of the buildings going into the whole how Godzilla can evade everyone. That trope. Yeah. Which is never used in any Godzilla movie up to this point. The sad thing is, is I read time like how can Godzilla hide in Manhattan? I've been to Manhattan before. It is not that big. And people will see it. Helicopters will see it. It is stupid. The sad thing is, at one point, they were actually considering giving this Godzilla the ability to cloak itself like a chameleon, which actually would have made some sort of sense. Well, I don't know. They used it in Jurassic World, and it didn't make any sense. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> this movie, like I said, makes a lot of enemies. And another one is it, it offends people some. Uh, partially when uh, she refers to Hank Azaria as a retard. Sorry about that. But, and then also uh, then uh, she calls him a WAP. Oh, I didn't catch that one. Uh, yeah, that, that would probably have some, uh, probably people have some issues. Probably they did back then as well. Um, and then attacking the, our American coffee industry. It's like, <laughs> it's another just, I think they were trying to do that for humor, but, it, it just like everything in this, it didn't land right. But I thought, okay, yeah, because there's no good coffee in Manhattan. I'm pretty sure there's some pretty darn good coffee in Manhattan. They called it French <laughs> roast. Yeah. I think it was supposed to be a, like a, a cultural difference joke. You know, it was like saying like the, maybe one of the, the most, Frenchmen know what real French roast coffee is. And the maybe Americans one don't. of the most awkward jokes in the entire movie. Maybe the all most awkward jokes I've ever heard, as far as just cultural comparison, very clunky elementary style writing, just tanks. Well, the same could be said about 
really about the entire character of Philippe. He is as Frenchy as you can get, pretty because, much. Because all these characters <laughs> are a series of stereotypes. That's all they are. They are cardboard cutout. I mean, they, they weren't going with the usual stereotype that, you know, that, you know, that the French are cowards or anything because the uh, Philippe is the, you know, the token badass in this movie. He's the he's the action hero going around gunning down baby Godzillas and shooting doors and all of that sort of stuff. He's the muscle, essentially. So they don't do that at the very least. Getting back to the graphics, the graphics for our baby Godzillas it was done through the Control-C, Control-V uh, school of animation, where it, we can just Control-C and then Control-V, Control-V, paste, 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 and done. That, that's, that's what we got there, and it's weak. It is very weak. Yeah, I actually... The CGI of the baby Godzillas is probably worse than, uh, than Papa Godzilla there. Or parental Godzilla. It's the worst CGI. Yeah. The practical effects for the baby Godzillas are actually pretty good, but the CGI just does not fare very well. (laughs) One complaint I have is that there weren't enough helicopter crashes. Oh, really? (laughs) More of them needed to crash. They needed to crash into stuff. They needed to crash into each other. We needed more of that, but maybe it's because I saw Kong, Kong Skull Island. (laughs) <laughs> so I expect more helicopters to be blown up now after well, seeing that. But. And it would fit with this movie's theme of apparently having the military cause more damage than Godzilla. <laughs> right, because this is a disaster movie more than it is anything else. The design of this Godzilla, it's amazing how the movie, how the movie studio that created Godzilla, it's amazing how they approved this. I find that very interesting, but... It w- I have so many problems with it. It looks like a T-Rex partially. It looks like a giant iguana partially. It has the, the chicken legs. Uh, I think the legs are one of the weakest parts about it. I'm actually not bothered by the legs, really. I think the idea is that it's... I think it's supposed to be designed so it can, it can jump pretty easily. Oh, I know why it's designed yeah. like that. It's just horrible, though. I've never been bothered by the design. I understand why other people don't like it. It probably shouldn't have been labeled Godzilla. I think that's the probably the biggest problem with it because it's such a departure from what we've seen before other than you know the the numbers of fingers and toes and the spines and such. But that's my problem though. I don't dislike this because it's different. I dislike it because it's horrible. It's different in a Un, in an unacceptable way in, in that it's it just doesn't fit the spirit of Godzilla at all it's t- it's too different and it's too different in the wrong way there are 11 minutes total in this movie that has Godzilla in it and then I was like oh okay well let's look and see how, how many minutes Godzilla is in the 2014 movie I bet it's more uh, that is also 11 minutes <laughs> So I, I guess because that movie isn't as long, the percentage of the movie with Godzilla in it is higher, but it is actually 11 minutes for both of them. I've, that's rather funny that that is the same. 
it may come as a shock, but there there are a couple of things that I actually do like about this movie. Oh, please don't send this hate mail. Uh, one of them is I do like that this movie actually tries to put us on the ground level of a of a kaiju attack. So we're seeing the cars getting flipped and people running and being stepped on and windows breaking and all that. And it's right there. And we're constantly having to look up. It makes it more visceral. Now, I think Cloverfield did that better. But I give this movie credit for doing something like that because I can't really think of another kaiju film that was trying something like that at this time. I could be wrong. And related to that, I actually kind of like the scene where... Animal almost gets stepped on because he decided to be crazy and run out there and try to film Godzilla coming. And he just gets lucky and Godzilla's foot lands, so he's in between the toes. And then he has a nice little reaction after that where he's coming off of his adrenaline rush because he's excited that he that he uh, filmed all of this, but also relieved that he's not dead. <laughs> Something else. This isn't necessarily alike but it's something that I realized is both a strength and a weakness for this movie at the same time and that is Nick the scientist makes no quibbles about destroying Godzilla's nest to make sure that the baby Godzilla's don't run loose and then lay their own eggs later from a practical standpoint that makes sense but it also robs the movie of substance because there's no moral dilemma that's being presented like in the original film where you have people saying we need to kill the monster because it's a threat. But then other people saying, but this is an incredible scientific discovery. We shouldn't kill it because why would we want anything Godzilla in this movie? That also backs up the American way that scientists are looked at, which is that they are more pawns of the military tools of the military then they are really part of the scientific community. And considering that Matthew Broderick's character is a total tool, that does make perfect sense. Next, uh, we can move on to Roland Emmerich. <laughs> so uh. it's fitting that this episode is, being, is going to be released on the week of April Fool's Day. Mm-hmm. Because we are covering a movie that was made by a fool. Certified fool. Now, I, I think of a famous line from Shakespeare when I think about this movie. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. <laughs> I believe that there was even a scientific study released from a university that concluded that he was an idiot. But anyway, you'll have to refute a study that in that study in order to convince me otherwise. I actually saw Stonewall. That That is even clearer evidence that he is a fool. But he also seems very self-absorbed. He also seems very selfish. He also seems very envious. He, no matter what this movie was called, because it's called Godzilla, and you already said maybe they should have called it Beast from 20,000 Fathoms 2 or whatever, but... It goes even deeper than that. He decided to just make whatever movie that he wanted to himself because that's how much he thinks of himself. 
He had no devotion to the actual name Godzilla or the product Godzilla or anything like that. He had no devotion to it. Like we said in part one, they threw out the original script to this and started over. They ignored so many things that the studio in Japan told them to not do. They turned around and they did a lot of stuff they were told not to do. And so they were completely disrespectful to to the material because they decided to do what they wanted to do, mainly him and Devlin. But it's called Godzilla, though. That's important. When, When you're making a movie, the title and the subject matter is important. But this is a pattern with Roland Emmerich. He gets a project, and then he decides to make something on his own that often is completely different. He, he did this with Stonewall, too. He t- decided to make a movie about an actual historical event, and then he made it into whatever he wanted to make it. And what did he do with this? He went off and he made Jurassic Park. Version suck. <laughs> and that's what he did. He went off and made that because he was envious of Steven Spielberg. He was envious of Jurassic Park. And he wanted to make Jurassic Park. And that's what he did. He made a Jurassic Park style movie with the eggs and the baby dinosaurs that look like little velociraptors and all that. Then the, the, the main Godzilla is a T-Rex for all practical purposes. As soon as you hit that 90 minute mark, especially, it turns into Jurassic Park. So he made whatever he wanted to, which that's just ridiculous. You should make something that when people go into the theater, they should see at least something close to what they were expecting. Yeah. Uh, There's even some mild references to some other Steven Spielberg movies I was noticing, in particular Jaws, because there's that line where that one soldier says, we need bigger guns, which just sounds like we need a bigger boat. Yeah. This... (laughs) I was at a point you know, going through these chronologically. I was looking at this and I'm thinking, I bet Kazuki Omori watched this. The guy who apes American movies, he watched this and he probably said, dude, this is bad. Well, he probably thought, what's the big deal with people picking on me about Indiana Jones and stuff? Look at this. This is this is so much longer and so much <laughs> more of it and so much more shameless. Yeah, there's a difference between copying and ripping off. Well, this is a ripoff. Omori was aping stuff, but this is just ripping off. Mm -hmm. It's crass and it doesn't work at all. And the Jurassic Park was five years old at this point, too. He was still on Jurassic Park, still wanted to make Jurassic Park. He was that fixated on it. Well, the, the Lost World had come out just the year before this. And I mean, Jurassic Park was so huge. It was one of the definitive movies of the of the 90s even though it had if you've read the book you realize that's the best thing ever yeah but anyway roland emmerich really thinks a lot of himself somebody ought to tell him that he might not think of himself so highly because he should look at the ratings of his movies and realize not everybody out there is roger ebert Oh, (laughs) and that's another thing is that he is really, really petty about film critics. (laughs) 
he thinks that I guess that film critics should just go easy on him because he's not trying to make Gone with the Wind when he makes his movies. And I, I guess the perception is that you're either this or Gone with the Wind and that there's, there's no anything between those two things. Uh, he he really so, is bitter about Ebert. Yeah. So he had the audacity to create two characters who are obvious parodies of Siskel and Ebert because you have Mayor Ebert and his assistant Gene. The funny thing is, I remember distinctly actually watching the episode of Siskel and Ebert where they talked about this movie and they brought this up. What was even funnier was Siskel was actually phoning in that episode because he was sick and they were talking about this and they were they were trying to be very nice about it in the show because I guess they just didn't want to go nuts about it, but they didn't much appreciate it. And they knew it was because Emmerich was not a fan of the unfavorable reviews that he had given his previous movies. But it's so petty. It's unfortunate that they, that somebody's that petty that they actually create characters like this. Yeah. I think it's possible that you can do a filmmaker can do something like this and but you can do it a heck of a lot better, I think. I'm thinking of Lady in the Water, which was an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And in that one, there's a character who's supposed to be a literary critic who his shtick is whenever he's seeing something happen, because it's kind of a fairy tale sort of a movie. And anytime something is happening, he's criticizing it like it's some bad story or a bad movie. And he gets a little, he gets some comeuppance later for it. But at least with that, it's not so obvious. It's not a specific critic, a specific person. It's meant to be more generic than that. It reminds me also of Red Dragon, which uh, is wonderful. It has Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he plays this tabloid, just scumbag that, that works with the you know in charge of this tabloid, and then he gets his comeuppance in a very satisfying way. Which, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But th- that was that wasn't supposed to be a specific person either, because generally you shouldn't try to do that. But instead, this Emmerich went the extra mile and even copying the name. Yeah, that did, is even that worse. didn't help. Yeah, that's the worst. And it, it should tell you that this was not well appreciated because in the cartoon series sequel. They do have the mayor of New York, but they completely redesigned the character and he's never referred to by name. Which is a smart move because can you imagine carrying over a character like that? That'd be really (laughs) insulting. Yeah. And And unnecessary, just plain unnecessary. Yeah. It's like this was. Yeah. Which brings me to something that I just, it goes along with, with Emmerich is by this point he was, him and Devlin were known for two movies. It was Independence Day and to a lesser extent Stargate. They managed to get themselves a giant hit with Independence Day. It was a very popular movie. I didn't see it when it was in a movie theater, but it was a favorite film to watch in my family. The thing about Stargate is much like with, like with this movie, there was a television sequel, a TV series sequel, and the shows were better than the movies. I don't think Stargate is awful. I don't think it's great either, but the television show is better. And the cartoon series sequel to this is better. I don't think that's something that quite registered with Emmerich. I think he was he was just riding high on Independence Day and the success he had with that. 
that he thought he could just do anything. He he it, this this movie looks like it was made by somebody who thinks they're invincible. It's funny when the reception to at least two of these Emmerich movies has been with with both Godzilla and Stonewall. One of the major criticisms was, well, it would be an okay movie, just don't call it that. And that's pretty bad when you can't nail down something that is that basic. And that gets us to the how this movie was received, which to Godzilla fans, it was very negative. They immediately started posting to all these message boards. Devlin started getting into it with them, uh, and it just uh, didn't work very well uh, with between those two. But then it's been said that this movie had to be shown to Godzilla fans in America in order to know what not to do. But you could do that. You you could have Roland Emmerich make a movie out of anything that has a significant fan base, and that fan base would probably reject it. And so I don't see why Roland Emmerich's movie is somehow like, oh, we had to do that so that people would know what to do. Really? No. You, you could make a Roland Emmerich movie for anybody, and the, the fan base wouldn't like it, probably. And so just the fact that they that we rejected this, it doesn't mean that it was necessary or that you should have done this research first. Spending one hundred and thirty million dollars on an object lesson about what not to do seems like a very impractical idea to me. No, it's just it's, it's just not very one of flimsy the things, justification for this movie's it, existence. It's, it's not even a justification, but it's just it's, you're. I think it's more of like trying to draw something good out of what happened. Like, oh, we at least learn what not to do. That's a that doesn't work. That doesn't work as a as a uh, anything really. I think going after Godzilla fans for not liking this movie is definitely not the right way to go because this was supposed to be something that Godzilla fans were supposed to like, at least supposedly, but. The fans aren't particularly picky. They just want Godzilla. They want the real Godzilla. And we've been doing all these 90s movies for so long, and I've had issues with those, and I'm not... So so going to this, I don't expect all that much. And yet, it's terrible, but in a, in a, in a worse way than the Heisei Godzilla movies from Japan. And so I'm not being picky, especially if I saw this at the time and I had seen all the Heisei movies, I would have gone in not expecting perfection. That's not the point though. I'm, I'm not being picky. Yeah. It's just that I want Godzilla. Yeah. And I, we understand the, the picky things that that Godzilla fans go after about how the design is different. He doesn't have the power set. He gets killed by the military and all of these no things. atomic breath. No atomic blah, breath. Blah, blah. He doesn't we've re- mentioned almost can't all heal these. fast and you know he's not as durable. All of these things. I think that's immaterial. That's just normal fanboy stuff that they all that everyone likes to nitpick and gripe about. Well it's it's secondary. Mm-hmm. I think G fans, especially American G fans. The thing is, is they had spent years defending their fandom and these films. They had to insist that all these movies were not just B movie schlock. 
And it didn't help that, as we talked about before, films like Godzilla vs. Megalon being overexposed and then all the bad dubbing and the bad editing, even in the good Godzilla movies, it was it wasn't helping Godzilla's image. It was creating a very bad reputation. Most American audiences looked at Japanese monster movies and saw them as cheap. So the idea of a big budget Hollywood version that promised to change that, it seemed like a dream come true. It could be the movie that a G fan could show his friends and they could take it seriously and not laugh at it. But what ended up happening with this movie? It reinforced everything. It reinforced that bad reputation. The subpar acting, the boring story, the obvious ripping off of other movies, better movies. It became a high profile disaster for the fandom in America. Now, I will admit for me personally, I was still too young in age and too young in my fandom to feel this impact. I hadn't yet grown to see Godzilla as something more than a guilty pleasure. I think that I always had inklings that there was more to these movies, but I hadn't quite put my finger on them. I read one article or two articles out of the newspaper, I think, at the time that this came out, and they were so utterly negative. And I, I don't even think I gleaned all the stuff that the, that a, a more experienced fan would have, but I definitely got the impression that this wasn't the real thing and don't bother going. And so that's why I didn't go. But it there was so much of a reaction to it already at that point that the, the there were a lot of people talking about it and how just bad it went. Yeah. I hadn't developed my sensibilities yet either. So the first time I saw this movie, I was actually pretty forgiving of it. I might've also been writing off of the hype for the movie. I was also kind of writing off of my enjoyment of independence day but when I my subsequent viewings of this movie, when I look back on it, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I just I sigh in disappointment. I understand the rage, but I wasn't feeling it at the time because I was an inexperienced fan. When I started becoming a more experienced fan, I still waited a while till I actually watched this movie. I, I only watched this movie in maybe 2008 or so it was a it was 10 years after it was a, it was a pretty long time after. And I think it was just because I dreaded it rightfully so. And then when I finally did, I thought, wow, this, and, and even then at that point, I noticed how utterly dated it was and how it just didn't work and how so much of this movie was fluff. It's really sad that the best parts of this movie are its advertising campaign. This is the first time I can think of where I was hearing people talking about overhype with, in particular with films, because the ad campaign for this was aggressive. Ubiquitous. Yeah. They, and I will give them credit. It was, it was a good ad campaign. The posters were striking, the, the, the teaser trailer for this was something that they made whole cloth. It's not in the movie, which is this scene of this boring, I guess it's supposed to be a teacher taking elementary school kids into a museum and they see dinosaur skeletons and he's rattling off all these facts about dinosaurs. And then Godzilla's foot crashes through the ceiling and crushes a T-Rex skeleton. 
that made the movie look exciting. And then you had the Taco Bell commercials. You ever see the Taco Bell commercials yeah. with the Chihuahua? Those still make me laugh. The whole, here, lizard, 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 lizard. Oh, I need a bigger box. I, oh, God, that's so dated now, too. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> wow. is. And then there was a second I, yeah, one. Yeah, you know, the more you think of it, it's like, yeah. oh, geez. Yeah, and then there was a second one where the Chihuahua was riding Godzilla's tail through a Taco Bell drive-thru. Yeah. And, you know, it, and that's what the sad thing is. The best part, like I said, the best part of the movie is the ad campaign. People remember those things more than anything in this movie. And I think that's probably the most tragic part of this whole thing. And the fact that not very many people go to the movie theater anymore. We've reached, we keep hitting all-time record low attendance in movie theaters. And movie theater audiences continuing to sag in numbers. And it's no wonder this movie is example one for why a lot of people don't go to the movie theater anymore. This movie is, it just epitomizes just soulless nothingness. I will say though, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but there was, there was a cartoon series sequel to this that started the fall following the the film's release aired on Fox Saturday mornings lasted about two seasons, 40 episodes total. It was probably, it, it was actually better than anything in this movie. If you watch the show, you can tell that the show was made by people who, unlike the filmmakers on this knew what Godzilla was, knew what Godzilla was about and liked Godzilla because the show has a lot more in common with the Japanese films. There's even a three-part episode called Monster Wars that is a giant homage to Destroy All Monsters. And they have a monster island and some really interesting and clever monsters for Godzilla to fight because the, the Godzilla in this is the one egg that survived at the end of the movie. And they use the characters from the movie, but they're written a lot better. They are more interesting and then they bring in some some new characters to spice things up. It, it, it took what kind of worked in this movie and then it jettisoned everything else and infused it with a bunch of stuff from the Japanese films. Which is more than I can say that what they could have done with this because they originally wanted this to be the, a trilogy. But the movie did so badly that the two sequels were scrapped. And it's probably better for that. And meanwhile, the 2014 Godzilla movie, when they knew the opening weekend that they were going to do a sequel. And this did not perform that well at all. So I figured let's close up part two with a few jokes at this movie's expense, because I like finishing on a high note. So, Brian, you remember the, the part when Philippe is talking to the one Japanese fisherman who survived the boat attack and he's got the lighter in front of him? Right and in his face, practically. Yeah, yeah. and he says, well, what did you see, old man? And he rattles off the Japanese name for Godzilla. <laughs> I wrote down there, I want Philippe to look at one of his buddies and say, arrest this man as an accessory to kaiju identity theft. And then uh, about 51 minutes in, <laughs> you have those two guys that are, that are looting the electronics store. Oh, yeah, that part. And... Did you notice what movie they were playing on the TV? 
I, what was it? It was. It came from beneath the sea. Oh yeah, that's right. With the giant octopus. It's a Harryhausen yeah. movie. And I'm thinking, wow, you're trying really hard to be clever, huh? <laughs> also, for some reason, I kept thinking that those two looters should have been played by the actors who played the the robbers in Home Alone. It seems like that would have been very fitting for them. You could have even said that it's in the same universe as the same two guys. They've just been reduced to looting <laughs> in a Godzilla attack. I think it's because one of the guys reminded me of Joe Pesci is what it is. Yeah, it did. It did me too. <laughs> and then finally, when we get to the the part when Audrey is doing her little broadcast and showing off all of the the baby Godzillas in Madison Square Garden. And then she starts interviewing Nick so he can say, like, hey, guess what? I was right, you know. And he has this line, these amazing reptiles are born pregnant. And I wrote in my notes, so they're tribbles? Because <laughs> that's how Dr. McCoy describes the tribbles in the original Star Trek show. They're born <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> there's a monster movie for you killer troubles <laughs> that would have been better than this for sure <laughs> anyway this concludes part two of the podcast you're listening to kaiju vision radio in part three of the podcast we talk about an issue that was either brought up by the film or was going on at the time that the film was released and so in Japan at this time, uh, it was a pretty big year, 1998, actually. So we're going to discuss the 1998 North Korea missile test and the 1998 Nagano Winter Olympics. So first for the North Korean missile test, what we're going to try to concentrate on is uh, what this particular event did and what the context of it was in the grand scheme of things, because this was a very important turn of events. It was one of the points where the situation with North Korea got a whole lot worse. North Korea launched a three-stage missile, and the third stage of it went all the way over Japan and landed in the Pacific Ocean, northeast of the Misawa base that the United States has. It was still uncomfortably close to landfall, though, if you look at the location of this thing on the map. And there were planes that were in the area, passenger jets, as well as fishing vessels that were operating in the vicinity where this landed. And so it's uh, if this had actually landed in the wrong place, it would have created a lot more of a problem. It, there would have just been an impact. There was, it wasn't like there was a live bomb on the end of it or anything. But if it had hit something, it would have escalated the situation even more than what it did at the time. So what this was to the North Koreans was it was a show of force. It was an act of defiance. It was destabilizing and it was provocative. It was a uh, definitely an act of provocation at a time when there were negotiations that were going on between the United States and North Korea regarding its nuclear program, which at the time we were trying to get them to freeze. There were other political motivations behind this. This was largely a political act. Part of it was is that 1998 was the 50th anniversary of the founding of the DPRK, which is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And so it was in 1948 that the country was founded. And so this was an act of um, politics, partially to commemorate that. It was also because 
Kim Jong-il, who was uh, the son of Kim Il-sung, who was the original leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il was elected, so-called elected, to be Mm -hmm. president of uh, North Korea. And so it was also an act of celebration slash, you know, this is me getting my big position. And so now here I am. But the biggest thing was, is that it was a demonstration that North Korea could use this kind of weaponry to attack United States military bases in Japan. That was the part of this test that said, we can attack this far away now. It was kind of the first step toward the sorts of issues that we're, that we're dealing with with North Korea now. And though there had been a missile test before this in 1993, this was what made things far, far worse. It also was, it pretended the fact that really we could do as much negotiation as we could, but at the end of the day, they are the ones that are in the driver's seat and it's up to them. This turn of events was 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 a great shock to the Japanese. Uh, it angered them as it would as it would anybody uh, to have a neighbor so defiantly launch a missile like that, even if nothing came of it. But it also frightened them because it showed them just how vulnerable they were, because this proved that North Korea was willing and able to use such weapons against them. And given how unscrupulous the the North Koreans had been. They had every right to think that uh, they couldn't be trusted. The North Koreans had spent a large part of the 90s uh, showing how defiant that they would be. Uh, They were often using the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty as as something of a ransom. They they threatened at one point to, to leave it, and only at the last possible minute did they remain in it. And they were refusing to let U.S. inspectors to go in and uh, take a look at their nuclear reactors to make sure they weren't making weapons-grade plutonium and all of that. They were a prime target for the North Koreans. The main reason why the Japanese were so concerned was because it was already known at the time that North Korea had access to chemical and possibly biological weaponry as, as well as they're trying to get nuclear weapons. And so... The way that this would work is is that if North Korea was so inclined, they could get the chemical or biological weapons, or if they created a nuclear weapon, they could install this on a missile and they could hit anything around that area of Japan now that they would want. The North Koreans are also in possession of a very large amount of sarin gas, which can also be attached to a missile like this, and then it can be... um, launched at a city like Tokyo or Osaka or anywhere around Japan, and then that weapon would then be deployed in that manner. Part of the reason that Japan felt so wide open is because at this point in time, they had really been talking about deploying missile defense that Japan and the United States had already started working on it, but it had. this was not near the time when this kind of technology was employed yet and was actually able to be used. And so Japan felt quite wide open. Japan also at this time uh, did not have very many cruise missiles or any sort of much of a retaliatory capability either. And so this left Japan quite wide open and the hosting of the U.S. military bases made them feel vulnerable because those bases would likely be primary targets for such an attack. This missile test 
caused the Japanese Americans to be much more concerned and it hastened their efforts to try to get a missile defense system deployed in Japan as an effort to try to stop uh, these weapons before uh, they landed where they're supposed to be going. Japan's response to this was pretty potent. For one thing, the, as part of the agreed framework that was drawn up by the North by North Korea and the United States in 1994, uh, the United States was to give 500,000 tons of oil as an alternative fuel source to the North Koreans, and they also promised to help them make two uh, nuclear reactors. Well, once this happened, Japan pulled their any contributions they were making to that effort, for one thing. They would break off diplomatic talks with the North Koreans. They refused to give food aid to North Korea, which was a huge blow to them because they had been dealing with food shortages due to droughts and floods at the time. And any diplomatic ties that Japan had to North Korea, they immediately broke. Because at this time, there were actually discussions about how Japan would be able to recognize North Korea diplomatically, and that all of that was thrown out. And really, a, a lot of the agreements and talks that were going on at that time were pretty much blown away because of this provocative action. And this, as we know now, this process has been going on over and over and over again with North Korea. We start trying to get something done, and then we get the defiance, and then it's, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. And really, this situation has been unsolvable from the end of the Korean War all, all the way up till now still. Because what we're really talking about is that this is, this is a war that was not concluded, and, and there wasn't any conclusion to it, so this is unresolved at this point in time. The thing I remember more about 1998 between these two stories, though, would be the Nagano Winter Olympics, which took place in Nagano in the Japanese Alps part of the country. Yeah, I actually have some pretty fond memories of watching this as a, as a teenager. <laughs> it was always very fun. It was very highly televised at the time. They always keep breaking records with how much the Olympics get televised, but this one was one of the much more memorable, more modern Winter Olympics that took place. It was also one of the first times I can think of where I was seeing s stuff on TV that was talking about Japanese culture. So I was learning things about Japan that weren't just things that would get put into the movies or such that I was seeing. It was a more real look at, at what was going on at that time in a more updated current way. The thing I love the most in the Winter Olympics would be the snowboarding. And so that's huge in this because this is the first time that snowboarding was in the Winter uh -huh. Olympics. That was about the time snowboarding was really picking up in popularity. This was also the first time that they had women's ice hockey. And the U.S. team went undefeated in this tournament and ended up winning gold against Canada 3-1. to one. They also brought curling back for the first time since 1924. And this was the first time that NHL players were allowed to participate in men's ice hockey. So I guess in a lot of ways, this was kind of like how in 1992, when they had the Dream Team and they let NBA players play in men's basketball for the Summer Olympics. A noteworthy thing is Tara Lipinski, who was 15 years old, took gold against Michelle Kwan in, in women's figure skating, which made her the youngest Olympic champion in a single event. And I remember both of those names. 
both of those names were extremely well known mm-hmm. at that time, especially. Especially Michelle Kwan. Uh-huh. She was one of the big stars, I think, in figure skating at the time. Nagano won out uh, to host the Olympics against Aosta, Italy, Hakka, Spain, Ostersen, Sweden, and Salt Lake City, Utah. Although I do know that Salt Lake uh, City eventually did get to host the Winter Olympics. In 2002. Mm-hmm. That was a very exciting time as well. I really liked the design for the Olympic emblem for Nagano. It's very pretty. It looked like sort of like a star, but also like a snowflake. Mm-hmm. But, and, and also like a flower, actually, was what it was. You know? Oh, yeah. That was beautiful, and I love the colors. It's really nice looking. Um, also, there were mascots for the game, and it was these four snowy owls, and they were the snowlets. Mm-hmm. And they were named Suki, Noki, Leki, and Tsuki. And I, they represented fire, air, earth, and water. Respectively, yeah. And they they were pretty looking. I liked the, the looks of the mascots. They were very Japanese and mm-hmm. very nice. These Olympics also marked the first time that Denmark won a medal in the Winter Olympics. And it was the first time that Australia had won an individual medal in the Winter Olympics. As for the, the rest of the medals, uh, Germany won the most with 29 the Americans took 13, and Japan had 10. Moving on from the Olympics, the economic growth for Japan was not very good in 1998. It was a negative 2%, 2.00 even percent. So that means that it was negative economic growth. It was a small recession. But also, this was the period that began where there was a, a long period of prolonged deflation in Japan. So this was, and this lasted for 15 years. The first year of inflation would not occur until 2014. And so this is a, uh, a period in which Japan wanted to have inflation, but just a mild amount of inflation to keep growing. But this was when deflation really started to hit rather hard. Part of the reason for the lower economic growth was the Asian economic crisis, which occurred in 1997. Well, Brian, uh, I think that wraps it up for this episode. Does this movie make you miss the Heisei movies? It it does in a certain way. It does, actually, yeah. (laughs) They certainly are a lot more uh, inventive. (laughs) It looks like you have a a little bit more of a newfound appreciation for the Heisei series. (laughs) But anyway, uh, with this out of the way now, we will be moving on to Toho's Response to this movie the first in the millennium series godzilla 2000 until next time if you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback we'd love to hear from you our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com you can also follow us on twitter and on facebook our podcast is available on google play itunes stitcher blueberry TuneIn, podcast addict our youtube channel and on our website kaijuvision.com Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara, 